Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm going to ask if you'd stand, please, for the reading of the Word today. Reading out of Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, um, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Father, anoint your word, I pray this morning, in our ears and our hearts and minds to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are in a series entitled, Are We There Yet? And this is a study in the book of Exodus, but as we have found, it tends to get out of the box and crawl into a lot of the other portions of the Scripture. Um, today, I want to talk to you about unshakable. And there are some very strong convictions that I have in regards to a subtext of this conversation today that um, will probably find its more freer expression in a message uh, yet to come at a later time. Uh, that for all intents and purposes will probably be entitled What I Saw on the Way to the Revolution. That's for another time, but that subtext is going to wander into this conversation a little bit because part of what we're witnessing in our world today and within the church itself is an increasing attempt to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament to make the Old Testament irrelevant to new believers or to New Testament, our current time, time period, and an increasing attempt to actually even take the Scripture itself, Old and New Testament, and say that it is no longer relevant to us today. And I am staunchly opposed to that, and we'll discuss that again more in depth at another time. What we find here in this conversation is the children of Israel are on their exodus, and they have finally come to Mount Sinai. They've come across the desert, and um, there's a picture that I took earlier this year when I was there. This is the Mount Sinai. This whole region is incredibly rugged, um, but you will find some sections of sand below those mountains, and below this there is not only St. Catherine's Monastery, the oldest monastery in existence, but there's also a, a wide sandy place where a large segment of people could have, in fact, camped out. But it's a rugged terrain. 
And these individuals are being brought by God, and this is the time when they're going to actually have a, a type of a conversation. And um, they're a nation that's being set aside for a very specific purpose. And we see some of this taking place today in the sense that, that the Jewish people are under assault like I've never seen before. Now, I, I hesitate to say this, but I have now lived in two centuries. Please be clear, I have not lived for two centuries. Okay? But I have. And in all that breadth of time, I have never seen an assault on the Jewish people like I've seen today. Now, some of you can reject this right away as political rhetoric of some type, and, and that's not the case. I can distinguish between Israel as a secular state and a political entity and the people of Israel, the Jewish people, or worldwide. And I'm not throwing Israel on the bus in that process either. I'm just saying there's a separate conversation going on here. But I have never seen worldwide in some obscure places as well as some of the most significant campuses and, and, and uh, cities in our world the assault on Jewish people. And why is that? Well, it can be the political fallout from what's happening in the Middle East right now, somewhat perhaps, but that doesn't explain the depth and breadth of what's going on. And this has been going on for millennia. And let's be clear, the ones who have actually been the most offensive years back and decades and millennia back were Christians who, who viewed Jewish people in a certain fashion and way and had a misplaced theology. I would say that the primary reason we find somewhat in what we're going to look at here today that God has established them as a nation, established them as something special. His chosen people, chosen for what? To suffer, to whatever? No, chosen that through that nation a bloodline would come and that would result in Jesus Christ who was to be the Savior of the world, both Jew and Gentile. And because of that, I think Satan hates these people. And I think that comes through in various expressions and I would say that you should examine maybe some of the alliances that are part of this, and you might find something interesting in that. But again, that's not our conversation here today. Just as a side point, what we do have is they're coming now before God, and what we find in this passage is that they have a choice. He's saying, you're going to be my treasured possession. Um, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, later, it's clear that through this, Christ is going to come, salvation for the world. But they have a choice and so Moses goes back, lays it all out, and then after they think about it, they respond and says, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so he brought the answer back. Now once that happens, then we find something kind of interesting because this is in Exodus chapter 19. And what lays out next is literally epic uh, in, its, in its statement. Because he gathers them up and he says, okay, and he lays down to you, here are going to be ten fundamental commandments, ten foundational statements to build your society on, to build the society of God upon. And we know these mostly, I think. Do we understand them? I don't know. And do we understand that this was only a portion of what was given to them? There was much, much more that was actually brought. But these Ten Commandments and other aspects of the law, the Torah that was brought forward, was the foundation not only of the Jewish people, but later of Western society. It's referred to as the Judeo-Christian ethic. These things were the foundation of what we formed as a society. And as our society has begun to unravel, as we've moved away from that foundation we find all sorts of damage occurring. But what I find fascinating is not just 
Christians and Jews that are commenting on this and trying to bring back the importance of these foundational statements. But we're increasingly finding atheists who are philosophers or political individuals who are also acknowledging this and saying, look at it, I don't believe in God, I'm not even into Christianity, anything else like that. But there were some foundational ideas and, and ethics and concepts that if you take those away, we cease to function effectively as a nation of free people. Luke Ferry is an atheist. He wrote A Brief History of Thought, and he identified and articulated the true source of the West's most important consequential ideas when he said this, quote, Christianity was to introduce, this is an atheist speaking, was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. These things that we will read here today and that you could read further on are significant, and yet we are increasingly pushing those away. These things that were a foundation of our society that at one time were upon almost all our courthouse walls, even in schools. This is not a case to be made for Christian nationalism or to reclaim those things at all. I'm merely stating what all society or all sociologists and good historians know. So Exodus chapter 20, just going quickly through it, God speaks these words. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Command one, you shall have no other gods before me, no one else before me. This is to be an exclusionary spiritual relationship. Two, he says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You're not to bow down to me, you're not to worship. This is strictly um, our relationship. There's not to be any of these imageries, these attempt to create things and worship them, uh, something that you can contain or hold or carry or shape. I stand beyond all those things. Three, you're not to misuse the name of the Lord your God. We hear this in our, in our entertainment all the time now. Someone messing the name of Jesus Christ as an exclamation or as a curse when that name is supposed to mean salvation and grace. Taking the name of God in vain. Oh, you're so narrow in your thinking. This is what God said. He said this is important that we acknowledge this. The Jews were so sensitive to this that oftentimes they wouldn't put the name Yahweh or the name of God in a position. They would use the word Adonai or the word Lord. If you find that in caps in your, in your scripture, it's a substitute for that. They want to make sure they didn't mispronounce the name. Names are personal, and they have a lot of meaning throughout history. And even to this day, you'll come across somebody. I mean, I've, I've had it before. I, I'm introduced to somebody, and I, I look at the name. I see the tag. I said, oh, nice to meet you, Carolyn. And then sometimes, this is not to pick on Carolyn's, but they go, it's Caroline. And I'm like, okay, got it. I will try to recall Caroline, because if not, I'm insulting you, and I'm messing with your identity, whatever the case is. It's not that type of, dare I say, even pettiness with God. It's something deeper. It's to have a respect and an awe for him. The Jews got this drilled into them through their experience in Exodus, so much so that they wouldn't even use that. Even today, if you'll read a Jewish author, and they reference just the word God, occasionally you'll see an asterisk where the O is at because they, they just are trying to still be respectful of the name of God. We're casual about it. You probably hear it on a weekly basis mentioned in a different way. 
But for the believer, that should never, ever be the case. There should always be a reverence in regards to the name of God and Jesus Christ himself. He goes on and says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. This is a day that, 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 that you work six days, but on this day, you're supposed to take a break. It says you're not supposed to do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter. And the kids really like this one, incidentally, folks. Okay. Uh, uh, nor your male or female servant, your animals even, or foreigners residing. You're supposed to just let this be a quiet day of not just rest. I like my rest. I'll go play golf. Do It's a day to honor God. If you miss the other six, you should have one day that you stop and contemplate the awesomeness of God and the grace of God. If you go to Israel, as I've been several times, and you're there on a Sabbath day, it is really freaky, especially in Jerusalem or any of the big towns, because what will happen, especially in Jerusalem, the traffic is going crazy, and then suddenly when it hits that time, the traffic slims down. There's still a few driving, but the vast majority don't. Whether they're observant Jews or not, they still take hold of that, and it's built into the country's dynamics. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Next one is honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. This is the first one that said with a promise that, that you're to, to honor. It doesn't say that you obey them when you're in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. But we should always honor our parents and recognize them as such. It goes on from there and says, you shall not murder. And this doesn't mean in, in warfare or capital punishment. What is specific on this is the taking of innocent life something that our country violates every year by the hundreds of thousands, if in fact not millions. And dare I say it, abortion. The taking of innocent life. Or any innocent life. When it's murder, when it's that, that is wrong. You are not to kill. It says you're not to commit adultery. And, and we put that in the area of marriage. And yes, sex is only within the confines of marriage. And we say, yeah, that's fine. And all you single individuals who are out there, regardless of your age, it's not just the t- teens and the 20-somethings. Within the church, it's a scandal today in this regards that, that younger Christians are sitting here saying, it, it makes no difference if I'm married or not. We're getting to know each other. And as long as we love each other, that is not part of the Scripture. If you are sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend, and I don't mean taking a deep rest... If you're doing that, you're wrong. And you're violating a commandment of God. And all the old people, I don't know how many times I'm coming across 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds who've either divorced or lost their spouse, and they're living together, and they're having sex. You know one of the most offensive places they say for STIs today? Yeah, nursing homes. Thank heaven for Viagra. Because that's what's going on. Okay, this is a little bit too much information for a Sunday morning. My point being is this. You think you're taking a pass, and you're not. And if you're a young person, middle-aged, old, whatever else, if it's not in the confines of marriage, then you are operating outside of God's law and His plan for you. And you need to take a long look at that. You shall not steal. There's a lot of different ways to steal. We won't try to define all those out. But you need to process, are we stealing? Are there things that we take that we shouldn't be taking or touching? says, you shall not give false testimony. That means we're not supposed to lie, especially a lie that hurts somebody else very specifically, but all lies ultimately degrade and cause harm. 
especially if it's offered in a court of law or offered as a testimony. Yeah, I, I know for a fact this person did this. And you don't know for a fact this person did this. That's a type of gossip that is actually a lie then. We're to speak only of those things we know about and those things that are truthful. And we're to do those in a loving fashion. The last of these is you shall not covet. We have made this a national pastime. The lifestyles of the rich and famous no longer plays, but we have a hundred different other programs that do the same thing. And so we're coveting this or coveting that. This individual's house, that car, that person, whatever the case may be, that lifestyle. And Scripture says, don't do that. You lock yourself into a cycle that is unhealthy for you and damaging to others. All these things were to be laid down as a foundation for faith. And while the first four is said to relate mostly to God and the next six to relate to how we work with one another, it's true. That's why Jesus summed it up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. Love others as you would yourself. You don't want someone to steal from you. You don't want someone to take from you. You don't want someone to kill you. These things do to others. And that's why he summed up the whole law. This was only a portion of the law. It goes on in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, and and we won't cover all the breadth of that. But there was an entire code that was laid down. Now, this is really important because you're lied to about this next thing a lot. You'll be told, don't follow, especially even the Old Testament is irrelevant, but even the Bible is, because after all, if I'm doing that, I should not mix my fibers, I should be kosher and not have my, my milk products with my dairy products, and if I have to follow that, then that means these other laws about sexuality and all the rest are immaterial, and that is a lie. Let me explain to you. There were three codes operating in the Old Testament as regards to Israel and regards to us. The first two don't apply to us. The third one does. The first one was a civil code. There were certain things that Israel alone was to not do or was to do because of their time period and because of what God was doing to them as a nation. And while they may be beneficial to us, they're not binding upon us in the current society. And that goes to the kosher and it goes to the mixing of the fabrics and fibers and all those other things that people try and play games with you on. The second one was a ceremonial code. It was strictly for the temple and tabernacle. It was strictly for worship and how they approached worship for the Jewish people or or their converts in those places. But the tabernacle and temple no longer exist, and we are not bound by that ceremonial. We can learn from it, but we're not bound by the ceremonial or the civil. The third one, though, and it's usually this that people try to say ignore because of these other two, and I say to you, ignore if you want, learn from, but you're not bound by the first two, but never ignore this one, and that is the moral code. And this is what we find in the Ten Commandments and other places in Scripture. Do we honestly want to say that the code of thou shalt not kill no longer applies for our society? Is that something we really want to embrace? Do we want to embrace that adultery and sexuality is free anywhere, anytime? Do we want to embrace a mindset that says that we can lie at the drop of a hat for personal gain? That is to unhinge society. And yet many are advocating that today with the confusion of these terse two without grasping the deeper understanding of this third one. I'm asking you today in this gathering, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Then don't be fooled by this. Don't be confused by it. 
Now we could go into much depth about all these things and, and the law and, and all that's part of this. But one of the other things that's being said is that, okay, the Old Testament's really not relevant. It's only the New Testament. The problem with that is that the New Testament is constantly quoting the Old Testament. Well, Jesus would never. Yes, he did. Constantly. And so it seems that it's very relevant. And we've explored these links several times, but today's one of the most distinct to me and one of the most powerful ones. Let's start in the Old Testament again, Exodus chapter 20. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, this is the facing Sinai again, Exodus 20, just before they're given the law. They trembled with fear. Okay, so thunder, lightning, trumpet, smoke, fear. They stayed at a distance, said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. This is terrifying, his voice. That's Exodus 20 and what else we've read before. Now let's go to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12. See if you understand this. You have not come to a physical mountain. What mountains are you talking about? To a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at where? You're understanding what's going on here, right? You should, because you just read the earlier portion. In other words, the writer in Hebrews is going directly to the moment of Sinai and the children of Israel, and he's assuming you know what he's talking about. And in fact, any Jewish person would have understood this was their heritage, this was their law, this is their understanding. So he's beginning with this foundational piece, but he's building upon it and getting a new understanding, a deeper understanding of it. You've not come to a physical mountain, a place of flaming fire, of darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did on Mount Sinai, for they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Even an animal, let alone a human being. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I'm terrified and trembling. Moses, the friend of God. So he's taking that experience from the Old Testament. He's grafting it into a, 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 a conversation that he wants to broaden people's understanding. This physical mountain, this fear, this, this terrible voice, this, this, this gloom and darkness and, and all the rest of this. This, oh, this, was, this is what it was like to be in contact with God like throughout the Old Testament even. It's a very scary, intimidating, powerful, awesome. That's who we know God is. But there's something deeper here. He says in verse 22, he starts by saying, you've not come. But now he says, no, you have come. You have now come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You've come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who've now been made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the one who, meet, who mediates the new covenant between God and people. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Okay, you've got to explain this one here. You haven't come to a physical mountain that's scary and terrifying and all that was Sinai. You're now part of and coming to Mount Zion, which is an imagery of, of God's heaven, of the new Jerusalem, of God's own abode. You've come to that. In fact, you've come directly to, to meet with God himself. And whether you can hear it or not, there are angels around 
every bend with this. There's, there's, there's joy, there's celebration, there's all that's part of this. You're welcome to come. And while God is the judge over all things, and, and there can be something about that that can be a little bit um, terrifying or, or disturbing, if you will, it, it, it's not the final point of what's being said. The final point is that there's a new covenant, and while Abel's blood, you remember Cain and Abel, Abel's blood cried for vengeance. Jesus' blood offers mercy and forgiveness. This required a death. This one gave a death. And he contrasts the Old Testament with the New Testament. And while this was the foundation for the New Testament, forgive us the understanding of God's holiness and His justice and, and the demands that were there, this is the answer to all of this through the person of Jesus Christ. We're going through a wasteland increasingly that is our country. And in that desert experience and in that wasteland and the howling winds that, that seem to be coming from every direction, we can feel like the children of Israel in that wilderness. And, and when that happens, we have to remember that there is a foundation of peace that we've been given in Jesus Christ. We need to realize that we don't stand on this mountain alone, that we stand on a place where God is present that even if we can't see or hear that in our darkest moments there are thousands of angels that are still singing the glories of God and want us to join in even in our trials and difficulties. And then as one writer puts it, when we come to God in this passage, the judge of all, the writer puts it this way, and I love this, go and stand, he says, in your dark moments in the courtroom of the Holy One. See the drama there. Our relentless and eloquent accuser of his airtight case against us. See the judge's unbending justice and sin's certain death sentence. And then see the substitutionary atonement and justification of Jesus. See the judge's genius in satisfying his own nearly impossible demands by doing the unimaginable, rendering sinners righteous without violating justice. And realize that you need not tremble before this judge, nor cower before this bar, but you may now come boldly to his throne. We will receive mercy and grace to help us in time of need. This is the new covenant. This is the new mountain that we come to. This is coming into the presence of God. The writer goes on, he says, Be careful that you do not refuse, in verse 25, to listen to the one who's speaking for the people of Israel. If they did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. Verse 26, When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all creation will be shaken and removed so that the only unshakable things are going to remain. And since we're receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping, but let's back up. Only unshakable things will remain. When I was in college, I used to bring down every once in a while cases of Verners. This is a Michigan classic. I used to refer to it to my southern friends who had no idea. Now it's all over the place, but they had no idea, and they, they liked it. And I refer to it as Michigan wine. <laughs> and and, and, and Vernon's just as a classic. <laughs> James, 
All of you react to that because all of you know that in shaking of this, there's a reaction to it. <laughs> I can shake this. I can shake this. I could shake this. I can grab any one of you for the most part, a few of you maybe not, but most of you and I could shake you. Someone can shake me. This building, in fact, can be shaken. I've only experienced an earthquake once, and it was here. I was literally in my office as a youth pastor at that time, and the wall started rippling and things moved. And I'm like, what happened? I thought somebody had slammed the copier against the wall or a, a truck had hit the building. But it was 1985 or 86 or so in there, and, and there had been an earthquake here that we had. All these things can be shaken. There's a place called the Blue Lagoon in, in um, Iceland, just outside of Reykjavik, I think it is. It's a beautiful spy area and, and natural warm sludge. They've closed down for this week. You know why? Because on Friday they had 800 earthquakes. Oh, that's fine. The next day they had 1,400. And so they're shut down because there's such an instability and such a shaking. Can you imagine experiencing, in the case of two days, 2,000 earthquakes? That would literally shake your world. 2,000 earthquakes in California, we could kiss it goodbye. Everything is shakable, but he's saying only unshakable things will remain. Since we're receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, we're on a mountain in God's grace, in his presence, serving him, and in that way, we cannot be shaken. And so in this place that is unassailable, where God says that, that nothing can separate us from his love, nothing can, can take that away, in this place that we are secure and stable and established, we are literally unshakable. We stand upon the word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, with wisdom divining properly how the old applies and where it may not, but embracing the Word of God. And in that, we have a foundation, again, that is unshakable. Don't let anyone take you from that foundation. Don't let anyone move you from that place. And as much as we come to a place of grace and of God's presence, it's not Sinai, thank God. It's a place of, of, of of celebration. It's a place of acceptance. It's a place of grace. Notice, we're receiving this kingdom that's unshakable. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping Him with, the passage says, holy fear, verse 28, with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. Just because we worship God in this new freedom that we have doesn't mean that we bring any less of a sense of honor and awe and awareness that it's God. He is not to be approached casually. His commandments are not to be dismissed casually. His word is not to be pushed away, but instead applying to our hearts, and it's painful. It's like a scalpel. Some of the words even said here today may cut you. What are you saying about my sexuality? What are you saying about my relationships? What are you saying about my truthfulness? It may cut, but it also heals. We come to a different mountain. We come to a place that is different from Sinai, but built on the foundation of what that is. And God, Jesus says at one point in time, he says, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words 
will never pass away. They will never disappear. There is a foundation that we can find in Christ that establishes us. There's a legacy that doesn't shake and doesn't go away. I want to close this service a little bit different than first. Something I said earlier um, in, in that first service, I've saved here actually for the latter portion to, to bring you to a, a different point in, in, in meditation as we close this. One of the passages that, of the law that's being shared, we find in Exodus 21, and um, it's talking about, about how to deal with slaves, and it was a different type of slavery. So if you have a Hebrew slave, because of the economics of the time there, you can keep them for seven years, but the seventh year, the, the, the Sabbath year, they're to be released. No one's ever to be kept in perpetuity. They're to be released. Okay, that's great. But it goes on and says this in Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, says, but the slave may declare, I love my master. I don't want to go free. Something has changed in the dynamic of the relationship. He's like, I've got a good job. I've got a good home. I've become part of the family here. I, I, and the master, if he's accepting of this, and, and the guy doesn't want to go free, he says if he does this, his master must present him before God. It's a spiritual moment. And then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. And after that, the slave will serve his master for life. I've always found this to be a powerful statement of our relationship with God. And there was a song that was sung years ago based on this scripture that I won't sing for you, but I want to read to you real quickly. Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Take me to your door this day. I will serve no other God. Lord, I'm here to stay. For you have paid the price for me. With your blood you ransomed me. I will serve you eternally. A free man I'll never be. So pierce my ear, O Lord my God. And while that song says that a free man he'll never be, I would argue that if you have um, a covenant with God, if you have committed your life to Him, if that's where you find yourself established, that you are freer than any other place you could ever possibly be, that if you base your life upon this Word, that if you establish yourself before God as a foundation that you will find yourself in, in an unshakable place. Our entire civilization at one point in time was based upon these things, and everybody knew it. Everyone knew about Mount Sinai. Everyone knew about the Ten Commandments. Everyone knew about Hebrews and, and this place of grace. Everyone knew that. Everyone knew that you didn't steal. Regardless of the circumstances, it was never justified. Everyone knew you didn't sleep around. Everyone knew you didn't kill innocence. And as our world unravels around us, there is one thing that is unshakable. It is the Word of God. It is the presence of God. It is the grace of God in your life and mind. And if there's any hope for this world that is unraveling, it will be found in returning to the fact. And I'm not a nationalist. I'm not trying to claim command of God's a theocracy. I'm saying freely. No one took the slave and slaps in the door and says, now you're part of the family. No, he says, I, I want to be part of this. I don't, I don't want to walk away. I want to join. At that point in time, before God, there was a pierce in the ear and I'm marking it says, we're now family. And that's what God said to you at one point in time. Said to me at one point in time, 
We say we don't want to be a slave anymore, but we also don't want to, the, the, the insanity of the anarchy that is our own life in society. We want to be your person. We want to be your child, God. And we came to that doorpost of salvation. Our ear was placed over maybe the same doorpost that the blood of the Lamb was shed upon at the Passover meal that incorporated its way into communion today. And our ear was pierced in that moment, a type of baptism. And when we stepped away from that, we were no longer slaves under the law, but children of grace. When everything gets dark and howling and the desert wind blows, stand on this mountain. Be unshakable in your faith. Don't listen to the lies that are being told to you. Lean into God and don't run from Him. I want you to stand with me this morning, please. Lord, this morning, we come before you as your people. Lord, there are people in this gathering who don't know me or my heart. And that's not necessarily important, but I pray, God, that in this moment they would know your heart, that they would know your great love for them, your great mercy. And Father, those of us that don't know that, that would draw in today and, and, and ask to receive you and to be part of your kingdom. For those of us that claim already that privilege, Lord, let us remember when we first went to that doorpost, when you first pierced our ear, when you first drew us into your kingdom, when the winds howl, when everything gets unwound and crazy, God, let us remember we stand on a mountain that is unshakable. We stand in a faith that is immovable. And there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Lord, this morning, we would come to you and we would ask, help us to establish the type of house that you asked us to. As Jesus spoke about that place that was built upon a rock compared to the one on sand, that upon the rock, when the winds and the rain came, it did not fall. Lord, today, let us hear your words and apply them in this moment of time. We come with our praise and our worship this morning. Christ establishes us, and there's nothing that can shake that. If we stay rooted in him, there's nothing that can shake that. As you go into this week, as you face the desert and the whirling winds and all the rest of that, don't lose track of where your salvation lies. Don't lose track of the foundation upon which all these things. And one final thing I'll say is this. You're never alone. The writer of Hebrews says that there's a cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us. And it's not like they're watching us and saying, do we line up? They're cheering us on. They're in the cloud. They're in the stands. They're saying, oh, come on, get, you can do this. Come on, okay, that, that one, but come on, you can do that. Come on, get back up, go. They're cheering us on. David, out there cheering you on. Prophet Isaiah is saying, yo, go. <laughs> Jeremiah is saying, forget the bullfrog. I'm with you on this. <laughs> Hang in there. They're singing your songs. They're encouraging you on. And when you stumble, they groan and they hear, oh. But then they say, come on, come on, come on. Like, like you're just waiting for that hero to rise one more time. That's the crowd that's watching you and me. Unshakable. 
Father, I pray as we continue to unfold the things that you taught to Israel that we'd understand how they pertain to us. Shape us in this continued conversation, Lord. I pray your protection, your provision upon your church, and I pray that your word would continue to be a firm, solid foundation for us as a church. We commit to these things this day. In Jesus' name, amen.